Hello and welcome to Profiles. I'm Murray McGibbon. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars and musicians and get to know the person behind the persona. Tonight, we have the pleasure of speaking to two legendary Bloomingtonians, a couple who've had an affair with the performing and, dare I say, the arts in general over a lifetime. They've been resident in Bloomington for the last 42 years and will need little of any introduction to our listeners. They are, of course, Marion and Keith Michael. Welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. Keith, you have yourself entirely to blame for this interview since I was the last person you ever hired for IU. <laughs> I remember arriving on my first day at work to introduce myself to you to, to be told by the secretary, oh, no, he retired yesterday. <laughs> so anyway, welcome back to Profiles, I should say, because you were interviewed in 1996, just as you were retiring from IU's chair of the Department of Theatre and Drama. So I'm sure all our listeners will be most interested to know what has been keeping you busy since then. Well, we've done a lot of traveling, Murray. We've seen a lot of theater and uh, just been enjoying ourselves. For many people, retirement seems to be a bit of a bugbear. They think, what on earth am I going to do when I retire? It doesn't look like you've had that problem. <laughs> no, we've had no trouble keeping ourselves busy. Very, very busy. <laughs> so let's go back to 1996, Keith, when you left IU after serving for 25 years as the chair of Department of Theater and Drama. Looking back, any regrets? Regrets, no. I miss, of course, the companionship. I miss the students, and I'm sure Marion misses the students. I do not miss making those very difficult decisions that you have to make as a chair. But uh, on the other hand, as a result of the retirement, we've had an opportunity to see a lot of things, a lot of countries, a lot of plays that otherwise we might not have seen. Marion, how did you feel when you retired and having your husband around all the time, not just at work but at home all the time? Well, I could have retired a year early, earlier than Keith did, which is what I wanted to do because I thought, well, I can get the house cleared out and straightened and all that sort of thing. But Keith insisted I wait until he retired. So we did a lot of things then, traveling and so forth, and so I didn't have him around a lot just to just hanging around. <laughs> but there was a caveat to all of that. Marion said, please remember, when we retire, I am not your secretary. <laughs> Murray, little did I know that I would become her secretary in many ways. <laughs> Marion, you and Keith seem to go as an item. Whenever people talk, it's always Keith and Marion or Marion and Keith. Uh, have you ever felt that you stand in Keith's shadow? Uh, no. No, I really haven't because... When we first began, Keith was an actor, I was an actor. Then he became a director, and I've never really had an interest in directing. And we had the same philosophy about theater in that the actor has a lot of freedom, but the final word is the director. And so we didn't have a problem with that. Uh, one of the big problems we had, which was my problem, not Keith's, when we had our summer theater in Minnesota, uh, we all tried out for the roles, and I didn't always get the role I wanted to have. I remember in Sheba. Come Back, Little Come Sheba. Come Back, Little Sheba. I really wanted to do that role so badly. But Keith did not cast me, so I went out in the woods. We had a, a theater on a lake in Minnesota. I went out in the woods, and I cried, and then I came back, and I was all right. And I think we had some advice from... Uh, a colleague of ours in St. Cloud, and she said, 
the thing you have to do is keep your boxes separated so that uh, even though I was on the faculty, I did not know anything that was going to happen that the other faculty members didn't know. And so I found out at the faculty meeting when they found out. So we really haven't had a problem at all with that. But I think, Murray, one of the remarkable things, first of all, is that both Marion and I, we have always worked in a profession that is our passion. And to work together in the theater, which is our passion, to work together all of our lives is quite remarkable. Absolutely. We have been together all of our lives working in the theater. and But to keep those boxes straight, and that, that really, after, it did not become a problem with us. We simply... This is the way the game is played. And so that was the way it was played. I did miss teaching for quite a few years. I really did because I loved it. I never went for full professor because I didn't want to take the time from my teaching for the research that I would have to do and so forth. But then when the undergraduates and graduates I knew had graduated, it became easier. An interesting thing about that is when Marion and I decided to come, and we all, we've always made joint decisions. When we decided to come to Indiana, it was really uh, Oscar Brockett, a very famous theater historian, had called me and said, Keith, do you have that doctor's degree yet? And I, I said, yes, I, I have it. And he said, well, I would like you to apply for the chair because we're going to create the department. And I said, well, Brock, I, both Marion and I have tenure here in Minnesota, and, and I'm a full professor, and, and we have a professional summer theater going. Why would I want to come to Indiana? And there was a long pause, and Brock said, well, Indiana is a good place to move from. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, we got here, we adored the people. We were, we were received with... Not just enthusiasm, but very graciously. And here we are, 40-some years later, still loving Indiana and the theater. Well, it's interesting you say that because I met Albert Wertheim just after I arrived, and he said to me, Bloomington is a lovely place to leave from and to come back to. <laughs> and so, I believe he ended up buying Oscar Brockett's house, I think. He did. Yes, he yeah. did. So yeah. small, it's a small world. Outside of the theater, which we know you have a great passion for, do you have any interests that um, our listeners don't know about? Hobbies or things that interest well, you? Well, one thing you, many people <laughs> don't know is, uh, yes, we have lots of things, but my first degree was in art. My major was in art, and we both went to, believe it or not, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, <laughs> which we one time were at a restaurant, and we were talking about Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and the young waitress said, well, where is that? And Marion said, well, it's in Pennsylvania. And she said, Indiana, Pennsylvania? And Marion said, yes. And I said, well, Jimmy Stewart was born and grew up in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And this young lady looked at me and said, who is Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> at that point, we knew we were getting up in years. <laughs> you've done it, an enormous amount of traveling, I know, and just looking at a list of what you've done since 1996, starting off on a trip to London. Um, and you've recently been in New York. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I believe you had some interesting stories to tell about getting out of New York during the recent bad weather. But what about some of some exotic tales of some of the strange and wonderful places you've been to? Oh, well, I guess one of the top of the list would be Bhutan. Bhutan 
is between India and Tibet. It's a tiny little country about the size of Switzerland. In the entire country, there is not a single red light. I mean, and I stepped off the main highway. It was 15 feet across. So that's Bhutan. It's a a Buddhist country. And uh, in fact, they uh, said, Keith asked how many people they had uh, in the armed forces there. And they said, well, I'm not quite sure, but I know we have more Buddhist monks than we do people in the armed forces. (laughs) But the the people were just lovely. They have a... uh, Minister of Happiness, and uh, I remember we were walking through. They grow red rice, and we were walking through the rice paddies to go up this hill to uh, the first Buddhist temple in Bhutan. And Keith stopped and took a picture of a little boy and his sister. He got down so he was sure to get into the picture with his smaller sister. And after we saw the um, temple, we came back through the village and this same little girl came running up to me and just threw her arms around my knees. And it was just just lovely. We have other tales from Bhutan. The, the young king that was being coronated. That yes. Story. The coronation of a young king had just taken place. And Marion and I wanted to send some letters back home. And so we went into the post office and we asked for some stamps. We need some stamps. And the lady behind the counter said, well, would you like your picture on the stamps? And I said, our picture on the stamps? She said, yes. Do you have a camera? And I said, yes, we do. And she said, well, why don't you stand over there, have somebody take your picture? And so Marion and I stood there and we had our picture taken. And sure enough, they printed out a series, a sheet of stamps with Marion and I my picture on them. And I said to her, well, how much is this? And she said, well, the cost of the stamp. Can you imagine that in taking place in any other country except Bhutan? But other countries, that places that I think are memorable, um, Murray, certainly going back to some place like uh, Machu Picchu. Oh. I think anybody who has, if you ever have a chance to go to Machu Picchu up there at 8,000 feet, you must go. It is an amazing, amazing place. That's one of the most spiritual places I've ever been. It's, uh, we, we had, luckily we were there for half of one day and, and the whole next day. And, uh, what these people did was unbelievable, without machines, without anything. Without the wheel. There yeah. was no wheel. Uh, for those people who don't know, it was built by the Incas in about the 5th century, but it's at an elevation of 8,000 feet. And it was desi- uh, discovered in 1911 by Hiram Bingham, who was a Yale archaeologist and explorer. I first became interested in it through a play called The Royal Haunt of the Sun, which is the story of Pizarro. Oh, Peter Schaffer's play. Yes, exactly. Is that what actually took you there? Yes. I was wondering, how do you find these strange places? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, is, as Marion says, it's spiritual. And then we went on up to Cusco, which is at at 11,000 feet or 11,200 feet. And uh, there's a wonderful experience we had there. We went to a children's school. Yes, and uh, some of the children were coming in, and their cheeks were little white spots on their cheeks. And Marion said, what is that? And, and the teacher said, that's little frost marks because they walked to school during the winter, and uh, so their little brown faces get frostbit. And so you have these little white 
spotches and patches on their cheeks. But they were in what we would call their costumes. They're not their costumes. They're worn daily. These little girls had hats that were like little half saucers on their heads. And they were, again, beautiful children. I see you've been to London numerous times and New York. I understand the New York. But what is the attraction for you in London? Plays. Well. <laughs> what <laughs> else? <laughs> Theater. Uh, no, it's uh, we were there the first time in 1958, 59, and it was still really on a war economy. Um, I think rationing was over, but uh, we lived in Bristol, and of course the whole center of Bristol had been burned and bombed uh, because of the airplane factories. And... Uh, so we lived out of the center. But we simply got to know London, and it became a, a, a very familiar city to us, and it was a very welcoming city. So um, whenever we could get, had a chance, we would take the train from Bristol up to London originally, and then after we retired, of course, we kept going back until, until it became so expensive. It was very difficult <laughs> for us to get back. Now. But it's very, very expensive but now. our last teaching years, we would, uh, Keith and I and Howard Jensen, who was in the department, uh, we would go what, every other year to London, and uh, we rented a flat. And uh, we would, the first two days we were there, we would go and get all our seat theater tickets lined up. And so, because in London... It isn't matinees just on Wednesday and Saturday, but there are various days. So we could see two plays a day, which we did. But it was also advantageous because frequently in those early years, we would catch the New York season in London because many of the plays in London were then coming over to New York, you see. So we would catch the shows very early in. Uh, so it's one of our favorite cities, of course. It's a, it's a wonderful city. Yes, well, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of your experiences there and in New York a little later, but right now it's time for our first musical selection. Keith, would you introduce it for us? Well, one of our favorite songs is a song called As Time Goes By, and I think many of the radio listeners will think of it as the song in the film Casablanca. What most people don't know, I think, is that actually it came out of an early musical a musical called Everyone's Welcome, uh, written in 1931. That's not a memorable musical, and I have never seen it, but I do know the song. And the other thing about As Time Goes By for Mary and I, first of all, that kind of summarizes our life in many ways, As Time Goes By. But the introduction to that song every is really, it says, in essence, everything's going on now, but listen, the real things in life is a kiss is just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. And so that's really why we like that song. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you, on that you can rely, no matter what the future brings as time goes by. Moonlight and love songs 
never out of day Hearts full of passion, jealousy and hate You're listening to Profiles. I'm Murray McGibbon and we're talking with Keith and Marion Michael. Uh, we were talking before the music break about your experiences in London and New York. What, what are some highlights of shows seen in those two big theatre cities? We, of course, have seen lots and lots and lots of plays. In some cases, we would go back and see plays that we think we ought to have seen and did not see. For example, when we retired in 1996, while Marion and Howard Jensen, who she talked about, went off to see another play, I felt I ought to see The Mousetrap. So I went back to see that forever-running show, The Mousetrap. And believe it or not... The cast was some of the cast was so old that they were almost list, they were listed in fact I think as alumni from one of the original from the original uh, cast in, in the show, so there were lots and lots of shows like that. Yeah, I think one of well we saw so many memorable uh, shows there, but uh, one that uh, I remember so much is the Hamlet by Simon Simon Russell Beale. He is so unlike your idea of Hamlet. He's rather small. He's a little bit rotund, but it was such a wonderful, fresh, new uh, look at Hamlet uh, that I was just amazed by it. And he's become one of my favorite actors. And we had seen Olivier um, do uh, quite a few things, too. And, uh, of course, his Hamlet is uh, world-known. But uh, Simon... Russell Beale's Hamlet was just outstanding. Another production that we saw, this was in 1998, was a production at the National Theater of Peter Pan. Now, Peter Pan was played by a boy, and in many ways he was a naughty little boy. He was Nasty a cute, little boy. <laughs> he was not just an, a, a cute little kid flying around, and he was flying around at 60, 70 feet in the air. But he was a naughty little boy, but you also liked him. You also liked because he was played like a kid, like a little boy, and it was a delightful, delightful production. I think probably the most wonderful theater building is the National Theatre in London. And Keith and I at one point said we really ought to bring cots and just live here because we would go to maybe three shows a day there. All three of their houses are very different. They do different things there, and uh, it's just magnificent. I'm very familiar with the theatre, but I'm sure many of our listeners are not. Could you talk about the three theatres there? Well, as our listeners don't know, I guess, my doctoral dissertation was done at the University of Bristol, and it was on theater architecture. As a matter of fact, an interesting thing, Murray, your, your doctoral dissertation, when you finish it in England, you have, of course, the readers but they always in, from the university, but they bring in another reader from outside the university, and the other reader was the designer of the National Theatre of Great Britain. And the, the three theatres that they have there, first of all, there is the Olivier Theatre, which is the big theatre. Right, which then, is a thrust stage, but a very big thrust stage. Then there is the Littleton, which is really a proscenium theatre. Then there's the Cotslow, which is a, truly an experimental theatre. And, uh, so and the thing about it is that there's restaurants inside. You, it, you go, you make a... It's a very social occasion when you go Concerts there. Concerts before the theater begins, and uh, people come and relax and have a drink, and uh, it's... It really is a people's theater. I it remember is. getting a poster some years ago saying, the National Theater is yours. 
Yeah. And yeah. it really is, isn't it? Yeah. It's the yeah. heart of London. And they yeah. were doing things that in this country were not being done then. For example, uh, one of the more memorable shows that uh, we saw was in nine, it was in well, actually it was in 2000 it was singing in the rain now the thing about singing in the rain at the, and this was done in the olivier was that if you sat in the first two rows you got rain slickers because <laughs> the rain was literally coming out over the first two rows when they danced so they would be <laughs> the people now whether we didn't sit in the first two rows whether or not you got the, i i assume you could take those slickers home as a matter of fact one person a person even put it up, up an umbrella when we were there, but it was—it's it, a kind of thing. It was an experience that you don't get otherwise. And Stratford upon Avon, do you have any memorable shows from that? Oh yes, oh yes. One that's memorable because it was not very good and it was very sad. This was Othello, and Paul Robeson. Paul was, Robeson, right? Paul well, this Robeson, was before we retired, actually. Yeah, was doing Othello, and he was just too elderly for it and sort of sang the role. And uh, Mary Orr, when she saw it, says at one point, call me whore. And I, oh, yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and she was a really fine actor. It was just not a good production. But we did see, and this was before we retired too, we saw Olivier in Coriolanus and uh, in Edith Evans was played the mother and but but talking about Paul Robeson we then uh, we had an opportunity to spend time with Paul Robeson and we had some students and uh, I asked Paul Robeson whether or not he would sing Old Man River for us a cappello and oh my goodness it just blew us apart and the sad part is now many students have no idea who Paul Robeson mm-hmm. was they simply have no idea that this was a great American actor who was compelled to leave this country because of his political beliefs mm-hmm. and could not get back in until the, He was about ready to die. They allowed him back to in back to in die. To Philadelphia. And so that's <laughs> yeah. one of the sad, sad things. Yeah. And what are some of the highlights of your New York theatre-going experience? There must be many. Oh, my. I suppose one of them is Chicago. The revival of Chicago in 1996 with... People like Anne Ranking and B.B. Newworth and Joel Gray in that revival. It was it just blew it. It was so good. Marion at one point had tears running down her cheeks. You know, when they tipped a hat, it was perfect. And and the dancers were in their forties, you know, they weren't these fresh young faces that that was marvelous. But uh, well, uh, this was early. The caretaker was probably one of my most memorable performance ever. Yeah, why we, was that? Because Pinter is such a a difficult player. Well, again, it was the actor. You know, it was uh, Robert Shaw. We later Did saw it. We saw uh, another production of that uh, in London with Robert Gammon playing the lead, and uh, it, it was a oh. the the thing is, you've got in this day and age now you've you've. There is so much going on on the stage, and the scenery is moving in and out, and all things of shifting up and down and around and so on and so forth. As one critic was said about a play that we saw, uh, I won't name the musical, but uh, it's very, very popular. But he said, the scenery is wonderful. It's too bad there have to have actors in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> but in those years... They were they were just wonderful, wonderful shows that you had to pay attention to. You you sat there and you listened to them. How wonderful that that is! You know, one of the other things, uh, Murray, that uh, 
I often think about, I'm, I'm all in favor of things being miked, providing it does not destroy the voice in the process of being miked. But now what's happening, especially with amateur productions and in some cases professional productions, when Marion and I started out as actors, you never ever faced upstage unless it was a very important moment and people didn't have to see your face. Now it seems to me at least we got this impression, that often the actors are turning up stage because they think, well, I'm Mike, they'll be able to hear me. But in truth, what you hear is also amplified by what you see on the face of that actor. And too often they turn up stage, yes, we hear them, but we don't really see them. Or in some cases, and I think this is, happens perhaps as a result of the way the actors are being taught, you're taught to respond to each other, but in point of fact, that's very important. But you should remember you're responding to each other for the sake of the audience. It's the audience that ultimately is the, is the thing that you should be working for. Let's change uh, topic for a second, looking at your list of places. I'm very interested in turtles and tortoises, and I believe you saw some of the, the real granddaddies of those. Yeah, the Galapagos. Oh, the Galapagos. What can we say about the Galapagos? The Galapagos, we spent down there, and those people who don't know, they're islands in the Pacific about 650 miles off Peru. And they were Darwin's islands. He landed there in 1883. So what, in point of fact, took place in terms of his theory of evolution actually was, I, I shouldn't say started, but it was certainly amplified by that. Murray, you can walk those islands and you there you get as close as two feet from sea lions nursing their their cubs and you can you can get down and look at them and they may go woof woof meaning you're a little too close uh, <laughs> or the blue-footed booby the very famous seabird with blue feet or penguins penguins at the equator if you can believe it and of course giant giant turtles what many of our readers probably don't know, is that down there on the Galapagos, it's not uncommon for the lifespan of a turtle to go 170 years and weigh 800 pounds. As a matter of fact, maybe some of the readers, not too long ago, their famous turtle named Lonesome George died, and they tried to find a mate for Lonesome George because it was... (laughs) They could not find a mate for Lonesome George. There's a quote from Darwin that I really like, uh, Murray, and he talks about this. It's it's in The Origin of Species. He says, I feel most deeply that this whole question of of creation is too profound for human intellect. A dog might as well speculate on the mind of Newton, let each man hope and believe what he can. What a wonderful approach to life, it seems to me, coming from, of all people, the man who spent time in the Galapagos. How so. accessible are the islands there? They control the amount of people that are uh, allowed to the island. And I think I'm correct in saying that if you're not a resident, now they're owned by Ecuador. And uh, more Ecuadorians are moving there. I I do believe you have to have guides and so forth to go there. Um, And, of course, you go by ship or you fly in by plane and then you go by ship to the other islands. So what is next on the travel itinerary for Keith and Marion? (laughs) Marion, where would you like to go? You mean on our bucket list, as they say? (laughs) Well... 
We would like to go to your continent. We would like to go to Africa. We would like to see, of course, Cape Town, but we would also like to see the migration of the animals. We really, we really want to do that. We've never been to Ireland. We've been to England how many times? We've never been to Ireland. We're always planning to go to Ireland, and then we get involved in something. And so we would like to go to Ireland. We have a, sort of an adopted daughter in um, above Melbourne, so we'd like to go to Australia and New Zealand. Spain, of course. Spain and Portugal. We've never been to Spain. Murray, uh, uh, in our travels, we... We like to spend some time. We don't just like to drop in and then get out of there. We like to talk to the people and get a sense of what's going on. And the reason we had opportunities, of course, to Spain, go to Spain, and opportunities to go to to uh, Ireland, but we wanted to spend time there, and we didn't have – we had opportunities, but not the time. And I would like to go back to my favorite city and spend more time, and that's Berlin. I have always liked Berlin – and uh, it's such a green city and very, very interesting city. Interestingly, uh, we were in Germany uh, in the late 1950s before the wall went up. In we were there in 1959, as I recall. Then we were there, of course, after the wall went up in 67. We were and there then, during the wall, too. Yes, and, during the, and then we came there after the wall came down in 2001. I'll tell you something that was very one of our most moving experiences, I think, maybe Marion would not agree, but... I would agree. This, uh, when the wall was up, we were walking across to the park, and you could climb in those years, you could climb up on platforms and look over the wall to, over to uh, East Berlin. And so we were in West Berlin, and we climbed up, and we were on the wall, and a, a young couple came up and climbed up with us. There were just two, though, that young couple and Marion and myself, and we looked across the wall, and suddenly the young lady began to wave her handkerchief and cry. And she said, my mooder, my mooder, my mooder. Her mother was on the other side waving her handkerchief. Well, guess who else was crying? <laughs> oh, my. Oh, that was very, uh, very, very moving I think, Murray, and sad. One of, the, one of the things about traveling is that you can read about those things and you – and 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 – until you actually experience them, you really don't understand the impact that something like that has on a nation or on the people. Well, it's time for our second music selection now. What have you brought along? Well, we brought along um, Empty Chairs at Empty Tables by Les Mis. We saw the original production of that in London, and uh, we were just knocked off our feet by it, and uh, that has always been one of our favorite songs. There's a grief that can't be spoken There's a pain goes on and on Empty chairs at empty tables Now my friends are dead and gone Here they talked of revolution Here it was they lit the flame Here they sang about tomorrow And tomorrow Never care. 
from the table in the corner they could see a world reborn you're listening to profiles we're talking with keith and marion michael i'm murray mcgibbon keith you you spoke e- earlier of doing your phd on theater architecture and i know you had a big hand in designing a a theater facility for the indian university campus but after you retired those plans got changed. What what uh, was left out of your original plan, and what do you think maybe the current theatre is missing? Well, I, one of the things, obviously, uh, and they they're aware of this, uh, is a green room where students uh, can meet the audience members after the show. Also, students can just get together because the theatre is a collaborative art and that kind of collaboration is a result of people being able to get together. Secondly, and this was a matter of money, in the original plans, the experimental theatre was going to be on a revolve so that the, the audience would sit around the entire stage and the stage could revolve. We first saw that there are revolving theaters in Europe uh, where, the, where the stage revolves with the audience around, and it gives you an entirely different sense of perspective. For example, rather than simply doing a play what we now call in the round, where the people are stationary and the stage is stationary, the revolve can very slowly turn, and, so, and it, it makes for a very, very interesting experience. But money, of course, was one of the, one of the major things. But I think a green room where where actors can get together and socialize, but then the audience can come down and talk to the actors after show, after show rather than having to meet out in the lobby, which is rather cold and sterile in many ways. I know you see a lot of theater at the college level around the world and professional theater. How, how does IU's theater department compare? I know this is a difficult question to ask a former chair, but how, what is the standard uh, like here in Bloomington? Oh, I think the standards are very high here in Blooming, very, very high. I think uh, we talked about this earlier. I think uh, as long as as they continue to teach the basics of acting, but more than just the basics of acting, but to teach the history of the theater, the source, and to teach things like playwriting, how can you act in a play when you don't know how plays are put together? You you must understand all of that. And all of the great actors really had a great sense of where the climax is. I, for example, when the Brown County Playhouse was in operation, I would go out there about every other night. And sometimes a play that was very funny in the beginning – by the time it got halfway through, it wasn't quite as funny anymore. And the reason is, is because the laugh line was not being set up by the actors in an earlier scene. Now, unless somebody is there to tell them that, they don't sense that. So those are the kinds of things that I think. Also, the longer you run a play, the more you'll understand the play generally, until you get to two or three years and it becomes old hat. But but the length of run, one of the great advantages, of course, of the Brown County Playhouse was that you were playing to a different kind of audience. And that, I don't want to say that it, that the audience is, is a, a sterile audience in the university campus. That's not true. But it is a different kind of audience than, than pl- at a place like Brown County or Ellettsville or wherever the theater happens to be located. You've both had very long and successful and happy lives, but I'm sure there have been some downtimes. I know, Marion, you had a... <laughs> a bad accident a couple of years ago, and Keith, you also had some ill health. What what has enabled you to bounce back and to to be so joyous and and happy people? Well, I think 
basically, uh, I am a happy person. Uh, I remember, I think it was in high school, people would accuse me of being insincere because I was always smiling. Well, I was always smiling because I was happy. (laughs) But, well, we were just determined, I guess. We had a lot of things we needed to do and wanted to do. And uh, I broke first, I broke... um, one wrist, and then I was hit by the cars, you know, and I was determined. Well, maybe the audience doesn't know what happened is that we walked to basketball games, and at that time, the bypass was under construction, and so this was in the evening. It was dark. We both always carried flashlights, but we did not cross at the red light. We had, it was shorter to go across, and at that time, it was, that was no problem. Well, as we're going across the, the highway, the light changed about 150 yards down the way, and the cars started slowly to come toward us. Well, I'm in the middle where the orange cones are, where they were repairing the highway, and Marion said, I'll trot on across, and she trotted on across and was standing on the berm. A young man and his wife from Martinsville saw me, swerved wide to give me lots of room, and hit Marion. And the last time I saw Marion, she was going up over the hood of a car and came back down on the berm of the road. Both legs broken. Well, of course, I mean, now, this is at a basketball game at night, and everything is now backing up a mile back. A woman jumps out from behind and says, I'm a nurse. Maybe I can help. The police were there immediately because of the traffic control. And... The poor young man and his wife, they were so shaken. It was absolutely an accident, Murray. Uh, But Marion is on the ground, obviously both legs broken, and she says to me, Keith, you go on to the ball game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't go on to the ball game. Your your listeners will be pleased to know. But somebody said, Keith, you should have gone on. You'd have won the Fan of the Year Award. (laughs) But then, but anyway, I w- went to Meadowood, and I have to give all praise to the therapy there. Uh, I was determined I'd walk out without a limp, and two and a half months later, I walked out without a limp. So I, you know, it's a positive attitude, I think. But then we're on our way to Kiowa, and what happens there, Marion? This is the next year. <laughs> well, I stepped out of a booth. It was a little ledge, and it wasn't the same a step high, and down I went, and I broke. My other wrist. <laughs> and, and so I was sent to Charleston, and they prepared it, repaired it, and, and I'm fine. <laughs> well, we're g- glad to hear that. Now, I know you have no direct um, children, but it doesn't seem that you've been short in the parenting department. You've got masses of kids spread all over the world. Tell us about some of your adoptive children. Well, we still have uh, students from the 60s when we were in St. Cloud, Minnesota, that uh, we see one every year. She comes out and spends a week with us. Sonny Van Dusen and his wife uh, from California, they were here twice in one year to see us. So we have that great group of students. And, and, then, and, and then, of course, we have all of the Indiana students going, dating back to 1971. And uh, we we've... One of the questions is, if we go into a retirement community, which we're going to do, of course, ultimately, is how many bedrooms are we (laughs) going to be able to get for all of these people? But we've also had students name their children after us. 
Well, this really wasn't, it wasn't a student of ours, but it was a student at IU. She was a Chinese student that was here studying art education. In fact, I think she did a master's degree in telecommunications in gaming. Anyway, uh, she found a young man here from her city of millions in China, and they were married, and Keith and I were in the wedding, and uh, then she called me a year and a half later, and uh, we were chatting. She was still here working on her degree, and she said, Marion, she told me she was pregnant, and I said, well, terrific, and uh, she said, "Um, did I know any names? She said, oh, it's a boy. And we went on chatting about other things. And then pretty soon she said, I like Keith. (laughs) And so we now have Keith Wang Zhang. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that, well, no, we have two others that are named after us. They're in uh, Westerville, Ohio now. Right, right. And uh, the Barnes children. And uh, we've had several people married at our house. And so we, we just... I don't, love it. Our Christmas list is very long, may I say. But I think people, uh, Murray, who, who have never been involved in teaching don't understand that the real rewards of teaching is the attachment you get to the students. That, that is really the reward, and it goes on for the rest of your life. That is what teaching is about. Uh, sure, it's about making a living and all of these kinds of things and forwarding knowledge and so I, on. I think theater is as, as probably music, art, Athletics, uh, certainly. Athletics, right. You become more involved with the student, and uh, it becomes actually a family. That's a cliche, but it does. And particularly theater, where you're in rehearsal nights and so forth, they play at a different time that other uh, IU students do. And so you get this family community feel, and you're close to them for a long, long time. Well, it's the emotion, too, because you were involved with them emotionally. And uh, that, that's, that's just part of our game in the theater. So, Your recent trip to New York reminds me of a line from The Winter's Tale, or a uh, stage instruction, rather, exit pursued by a bear. <laughs> um, I believe you had quite an interesting exit from New York. Please tell our listeners about that. Go ahead, Mary. <laughs> well... We uh, we were there during Sandy. We got caught by Sandy. So we were... We must tell you that we stay in a... This goes back to the first song. We stay in a marvelous little hotel called the Casablanca, which is about three doors off Times Square on West 43rd Street. And so it's a perfect place. As a matter of fact, it's the kind of a hotel where when Marion and I... Two years ago, we're walking through Times Square. We were staying there. A member of the staff sees us in Times Square and says, Hi, Dr. Michael. Hi, Mrs. Michael. Now, can you imagine that at one of the big hotels? I remember the staff saying, Hi, Mrs. Dr. Michael. Hi, Mrs. Michael. Anyway, we were supposed to leave uh, New York um, Monday at noon. Well, we were there for a conference, and uh, obviously, we couldn't because we were going out of LaGuardia, and that's where where all of the the Queens was really hit uh, badly. So on Tuesday, I said, Keith, we need a plan <laughs> because we didn't know how long we were going to be there. And uh, so we called my, my niece in Washington. To make a long story short, we took a bus, a mega bus, from, uh, from 7th, Avenue and 35th Street by the bagel shop. <laughs> Everybody stands in a line. 
and we got the bus to uh, uh, Washington and Virginia. And then the next day, we got a plane from Washington to Detroit and from Detroit to Indianapolis. That was our our, exit from New York. It was a a six-and-a-half-hour bus ride, but it was a very interesting bus ride, as a matter (laughs) of fact. We had never never taken a bus from New York to Washington. And by sheer luck, we sat in the very front seat, so we had a wonderful view of everything. You've been listening to Profiles, and our guests are well-known Bloomington residents and pillars within the artistic community, Marion and Keith Michael. I'm Murray McGibbon. Keith, tell us about your final music selection. Well, the final selection is a song from A Little Night Music, Send In the Clowns. And it's, this, in a way, for us is, again, a bit like Les Mis, Empty Chairs at Empty Tables. It's sentimental because we saw the first production of that with Hermione Gingold and Len Cario in 1973. That was a marvelous production. That was the initial production. And then in 1995, we saw Judy Dench sing this Send in the Clowns. Now to have what I, and I must use the word carefully, great actress sing Send in the Clowns at the same time, it was a marvelous experience. Well, thank you both so much for spending time with us this evening and for sharing your thoughts and ideas about your lives and letting us get a little secret glimpse into what's behind the curtain of the Michaels. For WFIU's Profiles, I'm Murray McGibbon, and thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.